watchers in the fourth dimension. How do you do? I'm the doctor. Before you reactivated it, I reversed the polarity of the neutron flow. Tear? Sarah Jane? I don't cry. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. I'm Riley. And I'm Alan. And as you've just heard, this episode, we're once again joined by our good friend Alan Siler, who will be moderating our full era retrospective for the Third Doctor. Alan, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I've been looking forward to it. Anytime, my friend. Before we get into that retrospective, we've got some mail to cover, and we'll start off with some feedback on The Time Warrior, which comes from John Harmer, who says, Sorry I'm late about commenting on The Time Warrior. Just to say that I'm disappointed that the following dialogue wasn't mentioned or quoted. Wayfaced Ninny, and <laughs> who knows what a toad thinks. My all-time <laughs> favourites from Iron Keep up the good work, foul knaves. <laughs> well, John, thanks to you, those glorious lines have now been mentioned on the show. Thank you. Yay! <laughs> what an insolent comment. <laughs> Next up, we jump to some feedback on our episode on the monster of Peladon. Ashley Rabin says, I'm well known for being a huge fan of the Peladon serials and of any Ice Warrior story. While this one is not good, it still further explores <laughs> a great world. In a strange and horrible world in which I were in charge of Doctor Who, I would set an entire season on Peladon, in which the Doctor gets stranded there and solves mysteries until they are finally able to say their goodbyes and go about their business. There would also be an episode called The Horns of Peladon, in which there's a Nymon stranded on the planet. But alas, the world is a better place for me not being in charge. <laughs> Julie, I'm particularly curious as to your thoughts on Ashley's plans for the show. Mm-hmm. Okay, are we talking Peladon with the old one and so we have king peladon with him hitting on joe i was just thinking back to our text thread where you said that you'd stop watching (laughs) well i mean especially if it was like the newer one i can see where you might be able to get some from the first peladon story but definitely not from this season absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) yeah and yet big finish have just released an entire peladon box set so go figure oh dear it's not peladon it was the writing (laughs) yeah Andrew Hughes joins in on the Peladon love, commenting, Love both Peladon stories, so it's definitely Peladu for me. More like Peladudu. <laughs> <laughs> I promise we're adults. Promise. I had to beat Riley to that joke. That's the sad thing. <laughs> uh, and Ian Warner also has a different opinion to ours, stating, I think Monster works better than Curse because the longer runtime gives it time to breathe. Mm. Hard disagree, Ian. Oh. He goes on to say, also sidelining Sarah Jane in favor of Alpha was brilliant. Okay. Um, I think we might be getting trolled, guys. (laughs) (laughs) That being said, Kieran James Evans is distinctly less favorable, weighing in with, so let's repeat most of the plot of the first one and then stretch it by two further episodes. Yeah, it's a bit of a snooze fest and highlights that we probably needed a change of producer and script editor. I, for one, find this season to be quite poor with only the Time Warrior as a good or great story. A four or five is probably a generous score from me. Matt Mm. Sweatman broadly concurs with this assessment, saying, I've always thought of this as the other Peladon story, a lesser (laughs) rehash of the original. And last but not least, we seem to have significantly swayed the opinion of our old friend Beardo Beatnik, who comments, Before listening, I gave this story 7.5 out of 10 Ice Warrior butts. But after (laughs) listening to the podcast, I re-evaluated my feelings and found your truth. This story is crap. Thank you. (laughs) Two and a half out of ten Peladon Afro wigs. Oh my gosh. 
Glad to be of service, Beardo. <laughs> and that's the end of our mail. And as a reminder, we love to hear from you all. And as you've heard, we do like to read out as many of your questions, comments, and thoughts as possible. So please do get in touch. You can send us an email at watches 4 d at gmail.com or connect with us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at watches 4 d with that, our mail is out the way, and at this point of the show, I will hand over to Alan, who will guide us on a journey back through the last five seasons. Over to you, Alan. Thank you, Anthony. All right, so like Dorothy, you didn't think that was going to start this way, did you? <laughs> but like Dorothy, you've left behind the monochrome world of Kansas and stepped into the bright, trippy, psychedelic, full-color world of Oz. More importantly, though, you've made it through the minefield of missing episodes, telesnap reconstructions, and animated re-envisioning. So, you know, you got through all that more or less unscathed. My first question is whether or not that has had any effect on your enjoyment or evaluation of the show. And is there anything that you will miss, anything at all that you will miss about telesnaps or animations? Patrick Troughton. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair point, fair point. <laughs> Let's point out that's the first two words said first on a John Pertwee <laughs> retrospective. So to try to actually answer you, Alan. Oh, I think I answered. So, <laughs> after covering so many missing episodes, you kind of get used to it. It doesn't really seem like a chore anymore. And while some are incredibly boring, <clears throat> the smugglers, <clears throat> just, just going to throw that out there. There are some that you just really still enjoyed because it had a solid storyline, even if you're just looking at telesnaps. So I think to a certain degree, there is not that big of a change. There's a bigger change to me from black and white to color because black and white hid so many problematic things. But you don't notice because it's black and white. That first episode of Invasion of the Dinosaurs that's in black and white is beautiful and glorious. And the dinosaurs lose some of that epicness when it goes to color. I would agree with that as the one who actually did watch the attempt at recolorization of the first part of Invasion of the Dinosaurs. It is better in black and white. And I mean, I frequently said on the show, black and white hides all manner of sins. But to go back to the original question, some of those telesnap reconstructions were quite a slog. I know we all really struggled with the space pirates, for yeah, example. Well, that was for other reasons. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that wouldn't have mattered if you'd had all the episodes, you'd still struggle that way. But and I realize we're on a third Doctor retrospective, so I don't want to dwell too long on this. But if you look back at our scores on stories where we originally did a telesnap reconstruction, and then later on they animated it, and we did a bonus episode revisiting, every single time our score has gone up. I also think back to what I thought of The Enemy of the World the last time I saw it before it was returned. So I watched a telesnap reconstruction and my God, it was a snooze fest. Hmm. And when it came back, it was phenomenal. It's one of the best. So I definitely think this benefits from there not being anything missing. I do kind of wish that maybe the monster of Peladon was missing. <laughs> At least a couple episodes of it. But beyond that, you know, I think this era does benefit from not having anything missing. I would say that the not having missing episodes makes me evaluate the show harsher because before with missing episodes it was kind of a joy to be able to picture what it was in your mind because it'll always look at its best for just you when you imagine what it would be like because you're looking at it optimistically especially one that you had a good feeling towards even it was just a reconstruction not the same now. We have all the episodes, so you can see everything. And as we always talked about the difference between black and white and color, that also makes things all there, warts and all, it's all there. So I think it made me judge it harsher. 
but I would say that my enjoyment was the same in regards <laughs> to whether the episodes are missing or not the same, I guess. But I, I want to say this quickly, and that is since we started The Third Doctor, I've been finding similarities between Pertwee and William Shatner. Lots of similarities. And in fact, to me personally, I view Pertwee as basically the Shatner of Doctor Who. And, and you can make of that what you will. That is old news. Here's the important bit. I did some research about this, about the two of them together, and I found out somewhere in the world there is an audio or maybe even a video of Pertwee interviewing Shatner. Yes, there is. It was posted around the internet, but it, apparently it's all been taken down. I can't find a copy. My belief is that the digital file couldn't contain that much ego, and so like <laughs> self-destructed. So... Anyway, I'm speaking to all you watchers, listeners out there. If you can find this, I would love it. Just an active link. Just an active link. Please send this to us. It would be so wonderful to experience that. Please, someone find that. Because when I discovered it, I was so upset that all the links were dead. I would answer further, but I think I've forgotten the question at this point. <laughs> but I would like to tie that back in with the Pertwee Shatner thing, because apparently Pertwee also had a bald spot, which he hid by growing the hair out and combing over. <laughs> okay. It all comes together. All linked. I mean, really, have you ever seen them in the same room? I mean, oh, just think about it. good point. Okay, so in addition to that, we're also in an era, and this is bringing it more firmly back to Pertwee. We're in an <laughs> era now where we have the same showrunner team, in this case, producer Barry Letts and script editor Terrence Dix, for pretty much the entirety of A Doctor's Run. Barry begins in Pertwee's second story, and then they continue on for the next five years together. So what do you think are the pros and cons of that? Do you find that that brings more cohesion to the five years? Do you think there's more consistency in the vision that's driving the show? Or do you find that maybe there's less variety in the style or tone of the show or in the kind of stories that's being told? So it's rather difficult just to put it all on the showrunner because there was also the idea of keeping it earthbound for so long, which hampers the show anyway. So a lot of those stories are going to be somewhat similar. And then you have them returning to places. You got Peladon being returned to Metavilus 3. So I really think that there is an issue with stories being retold. And I don't know if it's really a showrunner problem or just how they structured starting with the third Doctor just being earthbound. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think the unfortunate thing for both Barry Letts and Terence Dix was they were kind of saddled with this Earthbound concept by their predecessors. So they didn't want this, and then they spent the next few seasons figuring out how to get away from it, basically. I also don't think they got weird enough, minus <laughs> the time monster, which was very odd, but we didn't get some of those, especially First Doctor type stories, the web planet. Not necessarily my favorite, but oh man, it was weird. And that was wonderful. So you're missing the web planet, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I just think that they didn't go quite weird enough. I think it suffers not because it was the same team. It was because it was the same team and they seemed to lose interest because they were working <laughs> on other things and other shows. And by the time they got to the final season, they're sort of rehashing things. Yeah. And that's too bad because having the same creative vision can bring some consistency and character development but it just didn't really happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. I generally think five years is a little too long. And as Don says, it becomes very obvious in their fifth and final year with season 11. 
their interests are elsewhere. They're starting to think about what they're going to do after they've left the show. And season 11 suffers for it. Mm. It really does. Jumping off of what Don said, consistency is absolutely fine because you need to have a basis, especially on a show like this, that you can experiment off of. I say that one showrunner team is fine, but it has a lifespan if it isn't able to evolve. And it's pretty clear that they didn't. I think it's also interesting in that they both admitted in later interviews that with season eight, having the master return in every story was a mistake. And I Mm -hmm. think that's something we picked up on. By the time you got to Colony in Space, big surprise, the master's involved. (laughs) What? Wasn't expecting that. I think the master had his own desk at unit headquarters at some point, (laughs) cooking fish in the microwave as his evil scheme. It got kind of ridiculous. They definitely had some errors at the beginning of their tenure as well. I think certainly with season eight, you can put that up to their a little overexcited and still learning on the job. I think they really hit their swing in seasons nine and 10. Mm -hmm. And then season 11 was where it all started falling apart because they were busy working on a show that got cancelled pretty much immediately. That'll show them. Looking at you, Moonbase 3. Let's turn our attention to the star of the show, the third doctor. And let's talk about how he changed and evolved over those five seasons. Now, I know the third doctor wasn't terribly popular with all of you, especially at the beginning. So I want to know how your opinion of that character changed or maybe didn't change over the course of those five seasons. Did you warm up to him? And if so, when did he start to win you over? And what is it that changed your opinion of him? It's really easy to say from the very beginning he was a big giant dick (laughs) i've heard that mentioned a number of times (laughs) so i just wanted to just go ahead and put that out there because yes it was very obvious when we covered the first season or two of pertwee i really think it took some time during his second season with joe to Mm -hmm. really start to calm down i think that joe was important for him and that's why we've had questions before about whether or not we prefer joe and sarah and all of that Joe is, I think, the best for the third doctor because she mellows him out. She has a lot of empathy for a lot of people and is able to start convincing the doctor that he doesn't need to be such big giant dick. So (laughs) that's where I see the evolution happening is in that second season with Joe. And unfortunately, I don't quite like how they wrapped it up. I see what they were trying to do in Planet of the Spiders, but it just didn't quite land exactly where it needed to to see that full evolution of Pertwee's era. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I don't think he's nearly as bad in season seven as he is in season eight. When he's bumping up against Liz Shaw, he's a bit cantankerous. He's not the charming doctor we get in seasons nine and ten, but he's nowhere near as bad as when Joe gets introduced at the beginning of season eight. And he does basically nothing but belittle her constantly for an entire season, getting to his absolute worst in The Demons. And I think we talked about this when we did Day of the Daleks. It felt like they'd had a production meeting between seasons (laughs) eight and nine and suddenly gone, oh, this is not working so well. We got to do something about this. And so they mellow him out. I think Riley even said he became cool. Mm. (laughs) It's interesting that that exact same thing happened in the new series between seasons eight and nine with Capaldi's first season and going into his second season. 
Absolutely. It just seems to me like they kind of thought, yeah, we're making our hero almost unlikable here. Particularly when by the end of season eight, I think I liked the master more than I liked the doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have to. He was always cool. And they oh, set yes. him up that way. He was suave, he was charming, and the doctor was everything but that. I do think you're right, though, in that there probably was some sort of meeting to discuss the personality of the doctor because it's such a radical change. And I think our issue was never with Pertwee. It was the way that the third doctor was being written. So for me, it was nice to see in later seasons, especially The Green Death, where they let him play some comedy and dress Mm -hmm. up as the cleaning lady and that kind of stuff and really expand his range. And that was a lot of fun. I would have loved to have seen much more of that in his run. I think the change to me happened... I can call it exactly at the Sea Devils, in my opinion. I think that is where he started to change. And like was mentioned before, he went from being very thin-skinned, trying to one-up everybody, Very seemed very insecure. And then it switched over to where he was more worried about just looking cool, not necessarily having to put people down, but trying to be cool through his charisma. And that is something that Pertwee is an actor. He has a great smile. He has a charisma that can come out of him that's really, really great. And that works very well for him. I would say for the five-year run of the show, I enjoyed that he changed, but I feel like it was such a missed opportunity not to anchor that run of the show around the change of the character. I think that would have been really something wonderful, and that's something they could have done at the Planet of the Spiders. They could have just even just thrown it in at the very, very end or something. I think they tried to in Planet of the Spiders, but I just think that they missed the mark. Yeah. And honestly, Riley, I would disagree on pinpointing when his character shifted. I actually think it was as early as Day of the Daleks. If you think back to that scene where the Doctor and Joe are in the cellar, having been locked down there by the gorillas, Mm -hmm. and he's very soothing. He comforts her. He distracts her from what's going on a little bit. And that kind of level of empathy is something we just didn't see from him towards Joe in season eight. And I know of at least one of our listeners who likes to say that this is a character arc and character development that's been long planned, but it feels so much like a flick of a switch to me. Yeah, agreed. And even the earlier scene in that story where he's just sitting down and enjoying a plate of cheese. (laughs) It's so it's so casual and there's so much warmth about him in that first story of that season. And I do want to give a shout out to the line about the wine in that scene where he describes it as a touch cynical perhaps but never sardonic but not sardonic <laughs> see it also gets overshadowed by the fact that joe then goes to give it to benton and then yates steals it <laughs> <laughs> i will forever and always be mad at yates <laughs> Well, speaking of Joe, let's talk about the companions, because there's something that's kind of unique to this era. In the first Doctor, we had Barbara, who was a school teacher, but she didn't remain a school teacher during her time with the Doctor. But we have Liz, Joe, and Sarah Jane, who all basically remain in their careers during their time with the Doctor. Liz is a Cambridge scientist who has essentially been drafted and wants to get back to her own research. Joe is a trained unit agent, and helping the Doctor is part of her unit job. Sarah Jane is an investigative journalist who, at least in the Earthbound stories, acts independently of the Doctor, follows her own leads, gets into her own trouble, that kind of thing. So talk a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of this era's portrayal of these three characters, both as in the role of companion and as women. Very quickly, before we jump into it, we talked about this in our last episode, which at the time we were recording has not yet been released. So Alan won't have heard this. Ah. 
But we had someone ask us a question about Sarah, specifically around what the hell did she write about, given that anything Earthbound was probably slapped with a D notice and censored by the government. Right. And who was she writing for? Also a good question. Yeah, right. Don, I think it was you that suggested that maybe she was writing for the equivalent of the National Enquirer, and so was just allowed to get away with it. Weekly World News. The National Enquirer is far too classy for that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) You would have to tell her stories in the equivalent of the much-missed Weekly World News. Or maybe she wasn't even a journalist. She was the original blogger. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, carry on. I go back and forth as to what style I like more from a companion because you've got kind of three different ones that we're looking at. You've got the career ones that we see a lot in Pertwee's era. We see the ones just trying to find their way back home, like Ian and Barbara. And then you got the ones that are escaping a bad place. So you got your Steven, your Jamie, your Vicky, some of those others. And it's hard to say which has the most strength or weaknesses. I like the idea of the careers, but at least with Liz, being with the doctor's part of their job. They're literally been like, hey, here's the doctor. We're hosting him on you because we don't want to deal with him. So that it's just the doctor's more of a job for them. So it's kind of hard to say that they're keeping their careers when their career is tied to the doctor. I think Sarah is actually the one that's probably the most independent, which I do like. But I do like the ones like the escaping the bad place. I like the idea of the doctor somewhat saving people. I know that's not necessarily the in and out of what he's supposed to do, but just to see someone who is actually genuinely, I want to be with a doctor because the place that I was before is unsafe for me and they go on adventures and they don't have a place to end up necessarily. They kind of just go wherever life takes them. So I think that from a show perspective, they make the most sense, but I do like the career girls. Sorry, that was very long-winded and kind of all over the place. Um, And I don't really know if that answered you, but it's just very interesting how the show has done all of these different styles of companion. Well, I think with the Earthbound stories especially, you have to give these companions a reason to hang out with the Doctor. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially in the first seasons where he's such a dick, as has been pointed (laughs) out. Why else would anyone want to hang out with him? So you have two characters that are literally being paid to be there. Which also makes sense <laughs> because I'm not making fun right now. Literally, that's mm-hmm. his job as he hangs around unit. So you have people there as assistants and you still get the companion role. By the time Sarah Jane comes into the picture, she's a little bit different. The doctor has returned to be able to travel on his own, even though he's still hanging out on Earth most of the time. And so she's there because she's a curious person. She's a different type of character. And we're leaning back into the older style of companion where they're there because they either want to be there out of curiosity or they're escaping from something. Hmm. Okay, I guess that's it. I bet this didn't go the direction you thought it would, Alan. I'll add that it's based off the time and history that we are in. Mm-hmm. When these episodes aired, it was very important to depict these female characters as independent. And I think it works, but you can tell that the writing is having a difficult time. The writers having a difficult time trying to find that balance and where the character is independent, but not so independent that they're almost in a completely different story, having experiences and not really having any sort of relationship with the doctor at all. And I think that comes through, especially with how many times we noticed in Sarah Jane's season with the third doctor, how, and I enjoyed it at times because I thought it was very fun in the Time Warrior, how because it was her first time with him, she didn't know if she could trust him. And so she's literally on a completely separate adventure than he is until they resolve their misunderstanding later on. I find that was fun. But then later on, there's times where she's so independent that she's basically just doing her own thing completely. And I think there was one serial where I felt like they 
were in the very first episode, and then they didn't really even have a conversation together again until the very last scene. It felt like that at times, and that's fine, but I think the balance sometimes kind of fell apart in some ways. Yeah, I agree with that, Riley. I think where they really got it right was with Joe. Much as we talk about how much of a dick the Doctor was to her in that first season, I think they got her right. You think back to Terror of the Autons, she goes off to investigate the plastics factory on her own. But Mm -hmm. equally, she's got that level of independence and assuredness to her. But then you look at Colony in Space, when she realizes they're on an alien planet, she has a little bit of a freak out. And I think that's a very, very real reaction. Mm -hmm. I think with her, they got that kind of balance between the career gal with independence, as well as someone who is actually a little bit phased by some of this stuff, spot on. I don't think they really did with Sarah. She kind of went through an initial bit of denial at being back in time at first in the Time Warrior. But then once she was like, okay, I kind of see it. She just took it in her stride. I think one thing that would also help is if you could have writers who actually knew how to write for women by simply asking a woman, hey, what would a woman do in this situation? And how would she actually say these things? It's not that hard, guys. Or hire women writers. That's asking way, way too much. <laughs> At least we got some women directors. Well, that's not true. writers. I was going to ask if anyone on the production team knew any women aside from Katie Manning. <laughs> I don't understand, Julie. Did you not see that scene in the Monster of Peladon? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah, well, let's move on there. I, <laughs> you know, my mother was a woman. An Earth woman. <laughs> oh no okay sorry alan that's all right so this era introduces us to a whole team of unit members and they pretty much carry on to varying degrees throughout the entire five years as does the master for at least three of those years so we have this situation where the show has a continuing regular supporting cast which it's never had before other than the doctor and the companions so what do you think this does to the dynamic of the show does it add more dimension to it does it fill it out more what do you think this contributes to the success or not of this era The first thing is I think that they hit the mark on the casting of this recurring cast. If they did not have some of these individuals, it would definitely not have worked as easily. If you didn't have Nicholas Courtney and you didn't have Roger Delgado, it would have been probably pretty trying. I do think that I like the regular cast. I think at the beginning they used it too much. And then at the end, they used it too little. There was a better balance, I think, in what seasons? Probably eight and nine, maybe nine or ten. One of those sets probably had a better balance. But I think it actually works. I like having more people involved that you can kind of get to know. While obviously the most important people are the Doctor and the Companion, it's nice to be grounded with some other characters for the audience to root for. Yeah, overall, I think I agree with that. I think they got a fun dynamic going on with the unit crew in particular. You know, obviously, Nicholas Courtney was inherited as the brigadier, but he was kept on through the entire era. If they were unhappy with him, they could have brought in someone else as a replacement commanding officer. So he worked well, and we'll keep seeing him for a while. I think Benton, again, inherited character, but one that has become a strong, (laughs) strong favorite on the podcast. (laughs) I was trying to not go into that. Thank you, Anthony. I was impressed. You didn't say the name Benton once. 
And I'm yeah. really surprised. I was surprised too. <laughs> and, you know, we had Yates who came good in the end. They made me care Mu- at the end. Yep. Yeah, much as Julie spent three seasons hating him and then finally <laughs> was like, okay, Yates is all right in the end. I do wish we had seen a bit more of some of those fan favorite minor unit characters, Sergeant Osgood, Corporal Bell, etc. I think a bit more of them could have been fun. Rubish. Yes. <laughs> yeah, more rubish, please. And of course, you know, Alan, you mentioned the master and I think Delgado was just such a fantastic addition to the cast. You can tell the energy and chemistry between him and Pertwee was out of this world. While Pertwee was initially rather nervous and almost territorial about having him on the show at first, they became really, really close friends. And you can really see that by the end. So I think he was fantastic and really added some tension at first and then became part of the scenery to the point where they started including him even though they didn't need to. Mm. I think that the best thing that the unit gang did was provide wonderful character moment asides from the plot that made things relax, ease tension, or just you know mm-hmm. bring a chuckle. Even if you were watching a serial that wasn't necessarily very good and you were feeling kind of bored, there were scenes that would have just character moments between them that were really endearing. I Just because it was well, the last thing that we watched was that wonderful scene of the doctor and the brigadier going to night out in the town for... Catching a show that was really a lot of fun, and there's a lot of bits like that all throughout, and that's what makes them enjoyable very enjoyable. I think it could have been something that maybe on in a because this was a time of television where stuff like this didn't really occur. Maybe after like the revolution of television, like in the long form, probably after like the 90s or the early 2000s, maybe they could have developed more into having more of a complex character developments between them and how they react to each other than just being there for like that familiarity. But it's still good. I would have very much liked to have seen members of that recurring cast get a bit more spotlight episodes mm-hmm. just because they weren't really developed all that well. I mean, you kind of got a sense of their personality, but that was about it. I hate to say this because Julie will squeeze, but I would have loved to have seen a Benton focused adventure. Yes. <laughs> you know, just develop that, you know, give these other characters a little moment to shine. We didn't get that, but they're still very enjoyable when they're there. Here's my pitch. The Benton standalone episode, he base it after Martin Scorsese's After Hours. He gets locked in unit like overnight by accident and he's trying to get himself out and he runs into all these like alien artifacts and stuff. And in like, <laughs> comedy and hijinks ensue. I'd watch it. <laughs> well, of course you would. Of course. <laughs> I certainly would. <laughs> We've mentioned this a few times. The doctor, at least in the first part of his era, is stranded on Earth and the whole five years really has a sort of Earth-centric tone to it. And this is also at a time that the show becomes decidedly more real world, addressing issues that directly affected viewers at the time of broadcast like prejudice, evil corporations, colonialism, trade agreements, minor strikes, peace accords, the Cold War, all sorts of things, and even the environment. Does this help or hinder the show? Were you aware of this change as you were watching along from Troughton into Pertwee? And do you ever find that the show became too preachy? Well, because of Anthony, we actually (laughs) had to discuss the whole minor strike. So I blame him for that one. Yeah, worst episode we saw. And we had to cap it off with a history lesson. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Sorry. Personally, I think the show just went far too woke at this point in time. And let's absolutely must go. (laughs) Oh, so many peace summits. So many peace summits. 
which seemed to be Unit's main remit in those first couple of seasons where you'd have thought they would have focused on, hey, we've got a team that's going to investigate weird stuff and the alien crap. No, it's just Peace Summit. Remember, they did some bad things and they were just like, you know what, Unit, you don't deserve these other things. We're giving give you the <laughs> worst duty that we possibly can. <laughs> Overall, I think it worked. I know Don in particular was vocal about the repetitiveness of the so-called quater masturbation of season seven. <laughs> right. <laughs> I really got to copyright that term. You have to. You, you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Trademark that, man. Come on. But once they got away from imitating Quatermass, I actually think it worked quite well, particularly since Barry Letts and Terrence Dix wanted to take the show off of Earth a couple of times a season and slowly build into bringing it back to where it was before. And they eventually get there. And there's this tension with the Doctor. He's upset, angry, kind of angsty at being trapped on Earth. But as soon as he gets his freedom, he still spends about half the season each season on Earth he likes it when he can choose to be there. Right. And I think that's pretty cool. Well, I think as to all the historical pieces and how it reflected a lot of what was going on, it's something that you somewhat notice, but as being as far removed as, what, 40, 50 years, it's not quite as impactful for those specific things. It's not something that we're not in the midst of people gaining their independence after colonialism and things like that as often now as we have seen in the past. So it's very difficult to somewhat have those things on the forefront of your mind while you're watching these. So I think that for that piece in particular, I don't think I see it as much now as I would if I had first seen these episodes. Yeah. I think particularly something like the Miner's Strike, where we did have to put in a little history blurb explaining it and how it linked into the monster of Peladon. I don't think we had to. But we did. <laughs> I think it made the story make more sense. I completely disagree. But moving on, when I think about those first few seasons, especially when they were like, okay, we're earthbound right now. I think if they had all the ingredients for basically a proto X-Files show, mm. and then they somehow yeah, used it yeah. to make something else, which is almost <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> At the same time, as far as the political stuff, we've seen that before. Mm -hmm. It's just, it was usually couched a bit more heavily in metaphor and simile. I mean, how many times has Anthony brought up colonialism oh, in man. any of the prior seasons? <laughs> It's always been there. It's just now it was a bit more forefront. And because it's on Earth, it's a bit more obvious. And being on Earth is just, I feel like it's a complete rejection of the premise of the show from the very beginning. I think it was a bad idea. I was always against it. Maybe one season, just for a change up, just for something unique. But I feel like Doctor Who should be a show about adventure, first and foremost. And I guess you can find adventure here on Earth. That's true but I feel like you're limiting your possibilities on something where you literally could do anything. It just seems like you're tying up your hand behind your back. And the unfortunate thing is, is you know me, I love my historicals and I'll go on this all day if I could. You even lose the historical because he's stuck in one moment in time. I love the historicals. You can even throw in some aliens in there. You just, again, I've mentioned it on other casts. I don't need your Queen Victorias. I don't need your Shakespeare's. I don't need a person who is famous. I just need a period piece because I just think it's very interesting to see people of different eras responding to someone like the Doctor. Mm. And very quickly, just touching on the politics of it, what I thought was pretty cool about this era was there was a tension in the politics behind the scenes. You had Terence Dix, who was a renowned imperialist, quite conservative in his political opinions. He was 
best friends with Mac Hulk, who was known to be openly communist. He was a member right. of the British Communist Party. <laughs> and then behind both of them, you had hippie Buddhist Barry Letts just being like, hey, man, it's all cool. Right. <laughs> and so you see that in the writing and Terence had to script edit Mac Hulk's work. And he probably said, yeah, you get away with this because you're just couching it behind some lizards. But... <laughs> Somehow that kind of tension works and it never quite feels preachy. Does owning a pet spider really make one a Buddhist, though? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if you're very nice to it. If you rub its belly. Oh, no. General takeaways from the Pertwee era. What are some of the things that stick out to you most? What are things that you'll miss as you leave it behind? And what are some of the things that you just think of fondly toward it? So a general takeaway from me, seasons were a lot shorter than they were in the black and white era, which I think led to better consistency in each season. You had a higher level of story because there was less filler. You don't really get a Space Pirates until you get to the fifth year of this thing when you get the monster of Peladon. (laughs) (laughs) So overall, less to actually put on screen means that they can cherry pick and get better projects. That's one takeaway. The counter I will have with that is we had so many six-parters where some of the stories did get a lot of filler. Didn't mean that they were rated low because, again, since we're talking about consistency and production value and everything else that's involved, all those other things held up highly, but some of those six-parters were a slog. Flip side of that, we never had anything longer than six parts. Yeah, but we didn't get a dog master plan, which is glorious. <laughs> right. True. I view this entire thing as so many different car chases <laughs> of various vehicles. And then it just suddenly, in that last serial, it becomes oh, like no. that family guy chicken fight gag where it just keeps <laughs> on going. And every time you think it's over, it keeps happening. That's going to stick with me for a while. Also, lizards. Is it Jim Bond instead of James Bond? It, it's like our B character of James Bond, because... Jimmy Bond? <laughs> Jimmy Bond, there we are. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy Bond, yes. What I will take away from this era is, one, is a lot of the crazy, wacky, psychedelic effects oh, no. and scenes. I will also <laughs> take away all of Pertwee's Gurns, all of his... And Don mentioned... The completely crazy chase scenes, but all the fight, scene fight scenes, there we go. And also, let's not forget, we also, at the very beginning, had a whole lot of pointless gunfights going on. Yeah. Oh my God. Action by Havoc. Yeah. Yes. I almost forgot so about that. It was... Oh, it was just, it's a whole lot of action for a show that, it's a science fiction show, right? It's an adventure sci-fi show. That's what it is, right? Because at times I I kind of forgot during all this. I think they did too. Yeah. Yeah. I'll also throw in the overuse of synthesizer. (laughs) I will forever and always associate the part we are with synthesizer. Synthesizer and CSO where it didn't need to be there of people standing in front of an area they've already shot in front of. And then they see us so it and like, yeah, that looks good. But at the same time, we also got Delgado as the master. Yeah, yeah. Always great. I will always look fondly back on anything he was in. And let's not forget, we also got some good baddies. The Autons, they show up. Did like the Autons. Suntaran, we get that. Mm -hmm. Sea Devils, 
I love the look of the Sea Devils. We can disagree there. Okay. <laughs> we also get a ton of new lore introduced. We find out more about the Time Lords. We get Gallifrey named for the first time. We get introduced to the fact that Time Lords are dicks. Yes. <laughs> we got that in the Troughton era, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You got Regeneration named for the first time, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Indeed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Riley's not as thrilled about the lore. And we got the Great Gazoo being the one that dropped that, so yeah. That's my problem with it, yes. That is it. But I feel like because it gets overshadowed by the demons, and I agree that's an excellent one, but I think that if, and I know, I don't know if you were going to ask this, Alan, but I just want to go ahead and say it just in case, because I want to get this one out there. The Claws of Axos, I really, really enjoyed that. That was, I feel yes. like, a proper Doctor Who doing horror serial, and I really enjoyed that a lot. It, it was good. It was very good. And it wasn't just horror. It was weird and trippy. Yeah. yeah. That is your weirdest story of the third Doctor's tenure. And we had one of our strongest side characters in that. Oh, Mr. Chin. <laughs> no, not Mr. Chin. <laughs> the legendary oh, Mr. Chin. Dare you. Oh, man. I don't know how you guys remember people's names after this many seasons because I cannot remember the man's name. I just know he was American and wonderful. Oh, Bill Filer. Yes, yes. yes. Oh, Filer, yeah. He's no Mr. Chen. I loved him. There's Miss Hawthorne also. Oh, yeah. She was yeah. Awesome. She was awesome. We all loved her. Oh, absolutely. I think we had some very, very strong supporting characters yeah. across Pertwee's five seasons, whether it's Bert the Minor or, uh, you know, Mr. Chin or Bill Filer or Professor Rubish. Tommy. We had some... Tommy. Or Tommy, yeah. We had some strong, strong, strong supporting characters. Mm. Any of the nameless comedy yokels. <laughs> <laughs> yes we had at least one per season yeah how can we forget this era without thinking about all the yokels and of course that culminated in the famed holocaust of the yokel <laughs> yes. in the green death <laughs> okay so anthony you are the keeper of the numbers give us a little overview of how the gang reacted to these five seasons some of the highlights and some of the some of the interesting facts and figures that have come out of this firstly if you look at the five seasons and how we rated them and again i want to emphasize for people <laughs> listening our scores are completely arbitrary we make them up on the spot they are <laughs> 100% not related to each other. It's very much how we feel about stuff. What he's trying to say is we are the definitive source for <laughs> any score or opinion about Doctor Who ever. If you feel differently, you're wrong. Just accept yeah. it. Taking our scores over the course of each season and averaging them out to give us season averages. Our favorite season was season nine. 7.68 on average, followed by season eight, 7.48. I think that is a testament to the strength of storytelling and the supporting cast, given how much we all thought the Doctor was a colossal dick in that season. <laughs> Facts. Next up, season seven, 7.13, followed by season 10, very close behind, 7.1. And then in last place, the only one to drop down into the sixes, season 11 with 6.43. To put this in perspective, the only season prior to these that had made it into the sevens on average was season two at 7.29. Season two. Right. So, so far, season nine is the best season of Doctor Who. Yes, based on our arbitrary ratings. Right. <laughs> Completely <laughs> definitive ratings. <Yeah>. You <laughs> Now, looking at our top 10 stories of all time, based, again, on our completely arbitrary ratings. Definitively arbitrary. In 
second, joint second really, place, we actually have the demons. And that is tied with the enemy of the world on 9.13. Wow. And then we have really four other entrants because we have six stories in fifth equal place at 8.5. And that includes Inferno, the Sea Devils, the Three Doctors and the Green Death alongside the Dalek invasion of Earth. And when we re-examined the evil of the Daleks with the animation. Mm. Rounding out our top 10 beyond those, our favorite story of all time is still The Mind Robber, 9.25, followed by Enemy of the World and the Demons. War Games comes in next, 8.75, followed by Tomb of the Cybermen, 8.63. And then we have those six stories that get 8.5. Well, shout out to Death to the Daleks for having the best cliffhanger ever. (laughs) No, no. Overall, Perwi era coming in strong. That said, yeah. we did have some stinkers. So stories that averaged out at under six points from us. We have Doctor Who and the Silurians, 5.75. <laughs> Planet of the Spiders, 5.5. Frontier in Space, 5.25. Wrong. And Monster of Peladon at four. Four. Which was only ahead of the telesnap reconstruction of Galaxy 4, <laughs> the telesnap reconstruction of the smugglers, Whoa. the dominators, oh, sadly wow. not a telesnap reconstruction, and the telesnap reconstruction of the space pirates. Wow. Space pirate. Wait, wait, gunfighters? What, where? No, no, the gunfighters is okay. Yes. It's only one person who doesn't like that one. <laughs> there are actually 20 stories well no because some are tied 18 stories behind the gunfighters julie oh boy the gunfighters yeah. is amazing okay thank I'll you Alan. go on record with that thank you overall strong showing there it'll be interesting to see whether it maintains that once we get into tom baker all right are you ready to play a game i love Always. games <laughs> this is our second round since we didn't get to do this with the Troughton wrap up. This is our second go round of snog, marry, or exterminate. So, would you snog, would you marry, or would you exterminate Liz, Joe, or Sarah Jane? Yeah, that's a toughie. Do we have to exterminate one of them? <laughs> mm, no, I'll give you a pass on that one. Okay, I would happily live in a thruple with Joe and Sarah Jane, and then I would snog Liz Shaw. Perfect, perfect. I'll go ahead. I'll I will say I will snog Sarah, and I will marry Joe because she's just so sweet. So you're exterminating Liz, you heartless bastard. I thought we were going to be exterminating anybody. I thought we were going to do that. Yeah, we're passing on that. Yeah. Okay. For only this grouping. None of them deserve extermination. I think I would snog Joe and I would marry Liz. Nice. She's smart. I like her. Julie. Yeah, I know. I'm, 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 I'm thinking. I'm thinking here. I'm going to marry Sarah Jane so that I can have her leather jacket. <laughs> You'd look good oh, in wow. that. Yeah, I'll snog the other two. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Snog, marry, or exterminate the brigadier Benton or Yates. Oh, I know what Julie's. Oh, I know right, where Julie's so going to go. Easy. So easy. I mean, it's obvious. I would snog the brigadier, I would marry Benton, and I would exterminate Yates. It's easy. See, I somewhat agree in that I would exterminate Yates, but equally, I'm probably a bit more calculating in that the brigadier is a brigadier. He pulls in a good salary. So (laughs) I make enough salary for the both of us. I would be very comfortable married to the brigadier, but I would have a sleazy fling on the side with Benton. (laughs) Not just a snog, but an actual (laughs) fling. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Okay, so Yates is obviously being exterminated by all of us. Yes, poor guy. (laughs) Oh, 
oh, wait, wait, wait. I just had a brilliant idea. I could marry the brigadier and then Benton is like my paramour or <laughs> he's my, he's not mistress. What do they call? What, what are the men called? The master. <laughs> <laughs> You were the one who said that, not me. <laughs> Sorry, Don. Go ahead. Let me try that again. <laughs> Obviously, we're all exterminating Yates. You snog the brigadier because he's going to spend the rest of his life in a loony bin. He's lost it. <laughs> the cheese has slid off of his cracker, and then you you marry Benton. I would go the other way. I would say definitely exterminate Yates, but I would snog Benton. I would marry the brigadier because then we can just like have a exclamation off and see who can raise their eyebrow the highest. <laughs> I think in answering this, we're all having to go the other way a little bit. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're going to hit the triple A of Peladon. Would you snog, marry, or exterminate Arcturus, Alpha Centauri, or Agador? <laughs> oh, God. So I'm, I'm marrying Agador because then I have a teddy bear for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I might exterminate Alpha Centauri just because, oh, my God. If, <laughs> right. Oh, my God. I'm... Mm, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll snog the other one. So, okay. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm obviously exterminating Arcturus, but otherwise I agree with Julie's reasoning on the other two. Well, on Agador and then Alpha Century, it's just a snog. Never talk to them again. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to agree with Anthony exactly on that one. I'll have to take his answer on that. Arcturus, you can't trust. Alpha Centauri, you can't listen to that for the rest of your life. You blow your brains out. <laughs> so Agador it is. So I can't throw myself off the cliffs of Peladon. <laughs> exterminate yourself, Don. Exterminate yourself. Yes, I will. I'll exterminate myself and I am free of all other choices. <laughs> okay. Silurian, Sea Devil, or Draconian? Oh, wow. Oh, it's going to get weirder. Don't worry. <laughs> I can't wait until it's Terrence Dix, Barry Letts, or Malcolm Hulk. Damn it. Why didn't I think of that? I'm killing the Silurian. But I'm having a problem because all the draconians seem to be misogynistic. So right. I probably don't want to marry them. So I guess I'll snog the draconian. Oh, my God. Nope, I, I can't. I'll snog both of them. I'm not marrying them. Mm -mm. Can't make me. Can't make uh, me. If I can marry Madame Vastra, yeah. I'll mm. go with the Silurian for that. <laughs> That's not of this era, Anthony. Right, that's cheating. That is cheating. I know, but I think I have to exterminate the sea devil because I'm not sure I could live with the fishy smell all the time. <laughs> well, my answer's been stolen. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry, Don. Free seafood all the time. Right. <laughs> More of a steak man, really. Yeah, Anthony's right with Silurian because even though it wouldn't be Madame Vastra, they did show an appreciation for knowledge. At least you can, like, you know, while you're walled away, buried under rubble that the brigadier puts you under to kill everyone, you can at least talk your time away and have interesting discussions. The sea devils don't really talk, and you're right, they probably smell bad. Oh boy, yeah. But I guess you would have to between snogging. Yeah, I guess the snog the sea double though. At oh, least God, at least you just... guys don't have to worry about the draconians and their misogyny. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna snog the draconian because again, it's a snog. You don't have to see him again. True. They were kind of beautiful, if you recall. Agreed. Just saying. Mm -hmm. If right. I were going just by looks, I would absolutely hundred percent marry the draconian, but they're misogynistic pigs. So there's yeah. that. But you can change them. <laughs> <laughs> you can fix them, Julie. I have no patience to fix that shit. All right, a giant maggot, the eight-leg queen, or a drashig. Oh. 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 
Well, I feel like any Jeez. physical contact with the giant maggot is going to cause you mm. to turn bright green and die. So obviously I'm exterminating the giant maggot. Well reasoned. That said, a snog or marriage with a drasher could be equally fatal because they would just eat you. And at least an eight leg you can have a conversation with. Yeah, I'm going to have to marry the eight leg, but otherwise I'm kind of dead. Your reasoning is off. Because the lifespan of the maggot is so short, and just because you marry them doesn't mean you have to have physical contact with them. Mm. So you marry the maggot and let it die after it becomes a fly, because a fly only lasts a couple of days. So luckily... That's a quick win. Great. Well reasoned. See, I was assuming this meant marriage had to be consummated in line with the ordinances of the church, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not really married. <laughs> you think we're following church rules on this? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's what I thought. And I will <laughs> snog the eight leg and I will exterminate. Uh, what was the last one? I don't even know. Oh, drashig. Yeah, sorry, dishrag. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes, I will exterminate the dishrag. I'm snogging the drashig just so it will kill me immediately and just <laughs> not ha- make me have to deal with the other two. <laughs> I'm going to snog the Drashig. I might survive. You never know. I'm exterminating the maggot because that's disgusting. And I guess I'm marrying the eight leg. Perfect. Me and Don on the same page. Respect. All right. Two more. Pertwee as the doctor. Pertwee as the milkman delivery guy. Or (laughs) Pertwee as the janitor lady. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. So I'm marrying the milkman. Absolutely <laughs> marrying the milkman. I will snog the lady and <laughs> kill the doctor. <laughs> Clarifying question. Is this season seven, season eight cantankerous doctor? I knew doctor? it. I oh. knew it. <laughs> oh, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> He'll come back. It's fine. How about this? How about the premises? It's the doctor. And if it's to marry or to snog, it is the doctor from the beginning. So if you're marrying the doctor, you're going to have to wait five years. Oh, for the doctor to, five years. yeah exactly stop See, helping riley i didn't even need to have that clarification <laughs> because milkman yeah. and janitor lady are more useful in everyday life than the doctor is oh, wow yeah i'm definitely marrying the cleaner lady yeah we'll, we'll go with snog the milkman and, yes. and kill the doctor <laughs> there's really no other choice and finally, William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton, or John Ooh. Pertwee? Ooh. Well, you're obviously marrying Patrick Troughton. <laughs> obviously. Yes. Oh, you man. know our bias. This isn't even fair. You have to marry Troughton. <laughs> you'll give Hartnell a little kiss on the head, and then you'll kill Pertwee for being a dick. <laughs> yeah. What else can you do? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. That's pretty much how I thought you would all go on that one. And see, here I was, and Uh I was so blindsided (laughs) by this that I thought that we were going to try to think up out of the world of the seasons of the Third Doctor our personal list of Snog, Mary, Exterminate. But I forgot that it's a game that we actually have to be like cornered into having to make selections. So (laughs) Uh You've never played this game before, I forgot. I have played played the game before. before. And I have, but I forgot. When I was like reading over it, I was thinking about, well, if I could choose anyone to snog, if I could choose anyone to marry, if I could choose anyone to exterminate. So if it's okay, I know it's against the rules of the game. I will share mine. Curious now. Okay. (laughs) 
Snog Quinglea, also known as Ingrid Pitt from the Time Monster. Oh, yeah. of okay. course. Yeah. And I would marry Joe, like I said before. She's just so sweet. And mm-hmm. I would exterminate Vorg from the Carnival of the Monsters because he was the true oh. villain of the Carnival of the Monsters. Oh. So. See, if we're wow. going with that, it's definitely a quick fumble in the closet with Queen Galea. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably marriage to Queen Thalera <laughs> and <laughs> exterminate the doctor. <laughs> wow. 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 You can out of, out of literally everyone. Entire five years. Season eight, third doctors. I'm disappointed that you didn't make all three of your pick queen of some sort. I was trying to think. Of, uh, I Oh, no. Exterminate the queen of the eight legs. There we go. There you go. There you go. That's, three oh, queens. that's much better. See, I, I would marry the queen that was in Monster Peladon because she was the only thing I really liked about that serial. Right. <laughs> Okay, as suggested, you must snog, marry, or exterminate Barry Letts, Terrence Sticks, or Malcolm Hulk. See, I, I have a problem differentiating them in my head, so it's difficult for me. I'm exterminating Malcolm Hulk because I'm not sure I could deal with the annual lizard extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, if you just snog him, you're still going to get the text about it every fucking year. <laughs> Wow. You're going to read up on a whole lot of hot dino on dino action. (laughs) (laughs) I think marry Barry Letts because he's kind of hippie and cool and maybe snog slightly embarrassingly Terrence Dix because he's (laughs) ragingly conservative. (laughs) You know, that one Republican you made out with at college. I don't think I can top that. Yeah. Would any of you marry Miss Hawthorne? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Okay. 100%. Just needed to make sure of that one. Okay. I loves me a witchy woman. <laughs> True dad. And I'll never have a chance with Stevie Nicks, so Miss Hawthorne it is. <laughs> <laughs> the poor man Stevie Nicks. Right. <laughs> All right. That's it for Third Doctor. Well, Alan, thank you so much for moderating that. That was an absolute blast. It has been a pleasure to once again have you on the show. Before we wrap up, where else can we find you? I have got a couple of other podcasts that I appear on, and one of them I do with Anthony, and that is Modern Musicology. And we can be found on Spotify and Apple and iTunes and all of those other great platforms where you find amazing podcasts. And I have another one called Earth Station Trek, which is shockingly all about Star Trek. What? Uh, right? And I hear you also have a publishing company. Oh, that old thing? Yeah, <laughs> oh, that yeah. old thing. Uh, Cosmic Press, K-O-Z-M-I-C Press.com and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. There you go. And there are some great titles available through that. So do check out Alan's other stuff. Wholly endorse that. But with that, we are done with the Pertwee era. We'll be back next time when we kick off the Tom Baker era with Robot. But will his debut live up to expectations? Until then, thank you so very much for listening. And as usual, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Judy Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Shatner of Doctor Who, was recorded on Wednesday, the 20th of July, 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, 
please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, despite our ragging on the third doctor, we actually really enjoyed his era. Please don't hate us.